Hello, my name is Thomas and welcome to this latest episode of British Culture, Albion Never Dies. I'm continuing the season of Michael Caine by having a look at the 1975 film, The Man Who Would Be King. I asked on Instagram if any of you have seen it, and 53% of my friends on Instagram, that's Fleming Never Dies, have seen this film, whilst of course... 47% of respondents have not seen the film. So I'm not going to give a huge number of spoilers. I'm going to talk about the context of the film, a little about how it came about, but I'm not going to go into spoilers, given that half of people who at least are on Instagram and chatting to me um, haven't seen it. And I'd like to encourage you all to see it, because I think it's a fantastic film. And not just me. Again, it stars Michael Caine. And Sean Connery, five years after his last appearance in an Eon Productions James Bond film, and looking much more enlivened than he did in Diamonds Are Forever. But before I do that, I'll go back to my previous Michael Caine film, Zulu. Just had a wonderful, wonderful comment from somebody who who listened on uh, again on Instagram, Matt uh, Raubenheimer, who who gave this wonderful comment and gave me permission to read it out and give his name. He said, My father worked for the Natal Museum and other heritage organisations, so I had a lot of exposure to this part of British and South African history, including visits to Rourke's Drift and Il Sandalwana and other battle locations from the Zulu and Boer Wars. But it was only when I spent a couple of years in the UK that I discovered the movie Zulu. It's not very well known in South Africa. The movie quickly became one of my favourites for many reasons, especially the John Barry music and the masterful building of tension as the Zulus draw near and attack. It's also a spectacular film to look at as they picked a very dramatic location to film in, which is part of the Royal Natal National Park in Drakensberg Mountains. This is actually a long way from the real Rorksdrift location, and the spectacular backdrop of the mountains is totally different to what the area surrounding Rorksdrift actually looks like. Rorksdrift has a few small hills around it, but nothing as impressive as the mountains seen in Zulu. But the landscape of the film is one of the reasons it is so memorable, so that certainly isn't a criticism of the film. So thank you very much for getting back to me, and again, thank you to everyone in the, the gentleman's appreciation of Imperial History, the, that, that Facebook group. Um, I really appreciate all your contributions. So, as I say, if I say anything in this that strikes you, do send me a message, whether on Instagram, Facebook, or just email. Do get to all of them, and I enjoy them very, very much. But that film is set in Africa. This one, this one, well, let's take a look at the Internet Movie Database. It summarises the man who would be king as follows. Two former British soldiers in 1880s India decide to set themselves up as kings in Kafiristan, a land where no man has set foot, no white man has set foot since Alexander the Great. That's their simple summary, and I won't go much further than that. It is a film beloved of Christopher Nolan, the director of the Dark Knight trilogy and Inception and Tenet and many other great movies. In the book The Nolan Variations, the movies, marvels and mysteries of Christopher Nolan, it says this, that Nolan saw John Houston's 1975 adaptation of Rudyard Kipling's The Man Who Would Be King, starring a gleefully rascalish Michael Caine and Sean Connery as two former British soldiers who march into the mountains of Afghanistan, etc., etc., it absolutely floored me. 
It is one of my favourite films and a massively important film to me. There's a romanticism to that film, a great sense of romantic invention and adventure, very much like the treasure of the Sierra Madre many years before. Houston shot the film in Morocco, which is obviously a very, very long way from the country in the film, but he used a real-world texture to lend credibility. Exactly as he says, these rascally characters, it showcases this film, the two compelling characters, and I'd say compelling, they're not representative of a particular group, they're not supposed to be aspirational, they're not role models, they are described as detriments to the British Empire. Try and modernise those two characters, they are, as the book says, rascally, and the movie puts them in, again, a compelling world, not a perfect world, not too romanticised, I'd say, but not demonised either. It really shows you what it's like to live in a very, very different culture, and that's something very important to me, having lived in Turkey, Cyprus, having worked in Saudi Arabia, whereas the English teacher to the most conservative Islamic clerics in the kingdom of the two holy places. And of course, I've worked in Oman and spent a few years in China, six years, I think, in total. Yeah, that experience of living in a very, very different culture, I think, is shown very well in this film. It is an epic in the scope of the story, and I think it tells what could be fairly described as a ripping good yarn, and one in which the actions of the main characters have real, lasting, impactful consequences. It was brought to the screen by John Houston, American film director, who, yes, directed The Treasure of Sierra Madre in 1948, and also The African Queen, 1951, The Misfits, 1961 received 15 Academy Award nominations, winning twice throughout the course of his career, and had been wanting to make the man who would be king since the 1950s, originally with his friends Humphrey Bogart and Clark Gable. Ultimately, I think that pairing of Sean Connery and Michael Caine, two, two actors who are friends in real life, I think rarely, rarely makes it. Steven Spielberg has cited the film as one of his inspirations for the film Raiders of the Lost Ark. So it is, in many ways, an archetypal tale. Um, of course, the original tale was written by Rudyard Kipling, who is portrayed in the film by the Canadian actor Christopher Plummer, who I think does a British accent perfectly. Kipling's original tale was first published in 1888, contemporaneous with the, the time of the story, and it's the final tale in the short story collection, The Phantom Rickshaw and Other Tales, all of which are set in British India. I would say that Kipling is often criticised for his lack of critique of empire, but I do find that kind of rather misses the point of Kipling. Kipling was writing about the extraordinary world in which he was born and largely brought up in. He did spend some time in England, especially for his education, but he was born in Bombay, what is now Mumbai, in then British India, December 30th, 1865, although named after a lake in Staffordshire, if you're wondering what an unusual name Rudyard is. But his tales, the Kipling verse, as you might now call it, the canon, is extraordinary and has many different colourful characters of all different backgrounds. This short story collection uh, only follows two years after his first, uh, Plain Tales from the Hills, which I think is one of his best. And I was talking to an academic recently about... And the power of Rudyard Kipling's writing, and how he didn't seem to be restricted to genre. He wrote about British India, he wrote very whimsical tales about England, and was, of course, a, a World War I poet. And often he's focused on for the latter, but I think his, his tales from India really give a, a very interesting window into that world. I mentioned it just earlier, the Facebook group, the Gentleman Society for the Appreciation of the British Empire, 
I asked the fellas there if there's anything about this, this movie and about this original story that more people should know. And one gentleman, a Mr. Comfort, said, The novel by Kipling is apparently based on a real-life Pennsylvania Freemason, Joshua Harlan. Harlan, a member of Union Lodge 121 Philadelphia, did something similar. He wrote one book about his adventures, but because he ripped the British so badly for their behaviour in India, no publisher would touch a second edition. There is a fantastic book that came out 20-30 years ago called The Man Who Would Be King All About Him, and then he he says that he promises to photograph and post information more about it when he got to his office, and he apparently had access to Harlan's Masonic Lodge records, and then he did so. He took a photo of it and showed me, and it was really interesting to see it, the Lodge record when Harlan was made a Mason in 1821. According to the Lodge history, he was eventually suspended for non-payment of dues. I guess that can be a problem when you're off exploring parts of the world that haven't even been mapped yet. And yes, somebody else shared me a book, apparently by Ben McIntyre. I wonder if that's the same writer as Operation Mincemeat, Ben McIntyre. Uh, but Mr. Harlan appears as a character in a Flashman book by George MacDonald Frazier, The Mountain of Light, about the First Sikh War. So that's a really interesting bit of real-world inspiration. And again, I was asking fellas in the comments, one gentleman, Mr. Goldstraw, said, I think it sums up the sheer brazen nature of the British in that region. If you get a chance, read The Anarchy by William Dalrymple. Somebody else said uh, that he read in the short story something about an Englishman who became ruler of Sarawak, and several people joined in saying, yes, that was the Brooke family. They ruled Sarawak and Borneo for a hundred years, roughly. It was a recognised state, which both the UK and the USA recognised, uh, and they recognised the white Rajas as monarchs. The IMDb summary of the film The Man Who Would Be King talks about Kafiristan. Kafir, of course, means unbeliever in, in Arabic and but it specifically uh, refers to the, the infidel, so not Christians not Jews who are of course people of the book, uh, but the, the people uh, that I believe the Prophet Muhammad made war upon so Kafiristan therefore means the land of the infidels it's a region in eastern Afghanistan where the inhabitants had retained their local culture and religion and rejected conversion to Islam However, in 1896, the ruler of Afghanistan conquered the area and brought it under Afghan control. The Kafirs became Muslims, and in 1906, the region was named Nuristan, meaning the land of light, a reference to the enlightenment brought by Islam. So I'm getting this from the Library of Congress, which itself is drawing information from the Royal Geographical Society of Great Britain, and they have a map created by Edward Stanford in 1881. This was a very, very difficult time to access this part of the world, and it's detailed in Peter Hopkirk's book The Great Game, The Struggle of Empire in Central Asia, which starts off explaining what an unknown part of the world this was in the mid-19th century. It simply wasn't mapped. It had successfully rejected outsiders, and we have that today when we talk about Afghanistan. There's this often this idea that Afghanistan is somehow immune to conquest. The USA failed there, the Soviet Union failed there, British and Russian empires didn't really get a toehold. But of course, it is an Islamic country, and I've just mentioned one of the, uh, the Islamic conquests of it, and it's now under the control of the Taliban which of course comes from the Arabic word Talib, student, uh, which is not native to the country. And I think there's a lot to look into there, for example, the role of Saudi Arabia and its financing of madrasas exporting the fundamentalists that would be dangerous within Saudi Arabia to somewhere outside of Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan. It's as good a place as anywhere else. And you can read a lot about that in Robert Lacey's book, Inside the Kingdom. 
kings, clerics, modernist terrorists, and a struggle for Saudi Arabia. Again, when I worked in Saudi Arabia, I was working with the most conservative Islamic clerics there, and Robert Lacey's book rarely does shine a light into the last, well, 30 years of, uh, of Saudi, and I think gives an insight into why the Saudis financed, well, the extraordinary system of beliefs that is over there um, in Afghanistan. Uh, so again, it might, maybe it's immune from conquest, but it's not immune from influence. Like all countries, it can be influenced by its neighbours. But that, as I say, goes right back to the great game. And this gives the, the, the context to what Kipling wrote about. Maybe I'll just read out from Peter Hopkirk's book, just from the first page, to give you a bit of a flavour. On a June morning in 1842, in the Central Asian town of Bokhara, two ragged figures could be seen kneeling in the dust in the great square before the Emir's palace. Their arms were tied tightly behind their backs, and they were in a pitiful condition, filthy and half-starved. Their bodies were covered with sores, their hair, beards and clothes alive with lice. Not far away were two freshly dug graves. Looking on in silence was a small crowd of Bokharans. Normally, executions attracted little attention in this remote, still medieval caravan town, for under the emir's vicious and despotic rule they were all too frequent, but this one was different. The two men kneeling in the blazing midday sun at the executioner's feet were British officers. Ironically, it was one of them who had first coined the phrase, the great game, Although it was Kipling who was immortalised that many years later in his novel, Kim. Again, that's just the, the first page from Peter Hopkirk's book, The Great Game. It's a huge tome, about 500 pages. But I've been going through it, and I've actually been really, really enjoying it. Each chapter is pretty self-contained. I, I read the first few chapters more than a year ago now, and then just wasn't able to get round to it. was able to read one a few months ago, couldn't get to the rest of it and then I've been sitting down reading more. And it actually works really well. <laughs> I don't know if it's a recommendation. It works really well in a disconnected way. But as I said, it's such an interesting part of history. But the movie, The Man Who Would Be King, it has such powerful characters. It gives such a rich view of that world. It's worth seeing, worth reading the short story, because the two complement each other perfectly and worth reading some of this real history. The Man Who Would Be King, part of my season of Michael Caine. But I would absolutely recommend it to anybody as a great, great movie. Oh, and it has Sean Connery too. Have you seen the film? What do you think of it? What do you think its significance is? Contact me at Fleming Never Dies in this Facebook group about gentlemen who are appreciating the British Imperial history, or email me at Albion Never Dies. Thank you very much for listening.